0: Turn your Bibles to Luke chapter 15, that's where we're going to be this morning, Luke chapter number 15. And we're in week 12 of our series here, Real Christianity. Only one more week, and we'll be done with this. We'll be starting a short series on gospel-shaped parenting uh, for the first few weeks of um, August, I hope. Of course, we've got Missions Month in there, so we'll have to tie that in. Of course, the greatest mission that we have as parents is to reach our children with the gospel. And so that's, that'll, of course, tie into Missions Month as well. But we'll be having some missions-related messages throughout the month of August, also some on gospel-shaped parenting, and then get into a series on forgiveness in the month of September and October. Looking forward to that. And then, of course, into the holiday season. Can you believe it's almost August? Oh, this this year is just flying by fast. Luke chapter 15, we'll be looking at the story of the prodigal son in several minutes here as we get into the message. I'm not going to read it now because we will read it later on in the message. I was 8 years old... And my sister and I were out in the driveway We were riding our bicycles And I had fallen off my bike before All of us know what it's like to learn riding a bicycle And we've all, we, we, we all have those bumps, bruises, scrapes, dings From uh, falling off of our bikes um, And of course I had many traumatic experiences My mom's probably reliving some of them right now As I'm telling these stories Where's my mom this morning? There she is uh, yeah, I had many traumatic experiences falling off my bike. But on that day, when I was eight years old, I was out in the driveway riding bikes with my sister, and I was doing what typical brothers do. I was trying to harass my sister, and so I was chasing her on my bike as she was riding her bike. And we were just riding in the driveway there because we lived over on Westmead back in the day, and that's not a road that an eight-year-old is going to drive a bicycle on. Uh, so, thankfully, my mom was uh, taught us well not to play in the street. Playing traffic, but I remember that on that day I really wrecked hard, and and uh, but it wasn't as hard as some of my other wrecks, and I thought I had just sprained my ankle, I really did, and so for the next two or three days over the weekend, I laid in bed thinking that I only had a sprained ankle. Well, come Monday or Tuesday, Mom started to think it might be more than a sprain, and so she ended up taking me to the doctor and found out that my leg had been snapped in two places. Little did we know. But here's the reality. Even though I went through that traumatic experience, and of course that was the first broken bone that I'd ever had, and I didn't know what that even felt like, so I thought it was a sprain or a twisted ankle. But even with that bad of a traumatic experience riding a bike, I still ride a bike today. I still, after that long recovery, wearing a cast on my left leg and and it's still even weak to this day, as, as many years later, because, you know, when you have your leg in a cast for that long, it kind of atrophies, the muscles do. But even many years later, I still get on bikes and I still ride them. I still ride bikes to this day, and I don't have a constant fear of getting on them now. And the reality is, as we've all learned from experience of falling and getting back up. And the Bible says that a just man falls seven times and then rises up again. And so the Bible talks about this reality of how um, there's going to be times when we do not walk after the Spirit, (laughs) and we're going to walk according to the flesh, and we're going to fall, we're going to sin. And in those moments, we can either choose to stay on the side of the ditch, stay in the side of the ditch, on the side of the road, or we can choose to get back up. And so today's message is entitled, Come Back Kids. We're talking about the biblical truth of repentance, what it means... Um, what leads to true repentance, and what hinders repentance. So really, those are the three points today. So if you have your outline there, follow along with me. We're going to get into Luke 15 in point two. Point one is really just a quick definition and reminder of what repentance means, what it is. And then we're going to look at what leads to repentance and study Luke 15. And then look at what hinders repentance repentance in our life. And so there's two kinds of repentance. Number one, there's a repentance for those in here today who do not know Jesus as their Savior. And what repentance for you means is that you acknowledge your sin before God, you acknowledge your need as a sinner, and you turn to Christ for the only hope and forgiveness that can be found, and that's in his finished work alone, on the cross alone, through grace alone, by faith alone— and it's, it's in Christ alone. Amen? And so repentance for those who do not know Christ is you're, 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 you're acknowledging to God that you're a sinner. You're confessing that. You're choosing to forsake that and turn to Christ and trust him for the hope of your salvation. Then there's repentance for the believer. There's a daily renewal of the mind that occurs as we change our minds to what God says is true. And certainly, as believers, we still repent about sin when we choose to long and and lure after sin. And we uh, change our minds about who God is and what what He's doing and who we are and what His gospel means for us. And so joyful Christians learn how to turn back quickly and often every time they fall. They are quick to run to Christ and not to run from Him. They know that Jesus is someone to hide themselves in, not to hide from. They know with confidence that Jesus is not on a war path against them, but as his children, he's on a rescue mission for them, restoring them. And this is who Jesus is. This is what he's doing in our lives with this biblical reality, this biblical truth, of repentance. So, number one, the first thing we want to define is what is repentance, because this is a word that is so often confused. And I'm not going to dig into this too deep. I did preach a series four or five years ago. How many of you remember the series I preached on repentance? Uh, in fact, I believe the uh, Johnsons, Jeremy and Leslie, that was the first series where they started attending our church, visiting, and they heard that series. So, so go back and listen to that. It's about an eight-week series on repentance, what it means, why it's important. and and how we apply that to our lives with an understanding of the gospel. And so unfortunately, there's much confusion over this word today in Christianity. Um, And so before defining what repentance is, let's talk about what it is not. So you might want to write these down. I believe there's some blanks there for you. What repentance is not? What repentance is not? These aren't on the screen, so just listen closely. Number one, repentance is not just guilt, shame, or condemnation. In fact, guilt, shame, and condemnation most often source from the accuser of the brethren and not from God. But what true conviction of the Spirit does is it calls us to Jesus, but condemnation pushes us away from Jesus. And so what repentance is not is it's it's not you getting real guilty, real ashamed, and feeling all real condemned. Um, Sometimes we think that that's humility— But what humility is, is understanding who God is, what he's done for you, and who you are in light of those realities. That's true humility. And so sometimes in Christian religion even, we get this idea that the more we beat ourselves, the more we crawl on broken glass, the more we're repenting. And that's just not the case. Number two, so it's not just guilt, shame, or condemnation. Number two, repentance is not merely regret, remorse, or self-abasement. It's not merely regret, remorse, or self-abasement. What do we mean by that? God's not just looking for a sad emotional response about our sin. What he is looking for is a humble, submissive, tender heart that will yield back to his loving lordship and leadership in our lives. And so it's not merely just a regret or remorse or sorrow. In fact, Paul talks about that in 2 Corinthians. He talks about how there's two kinds of sorrow. There's a worldly sorrow which is really just an emotional response and more of a sorrow because you got caught in your sin. But then he says there's a godly sorrow. And so we have to be careful as we define what repentance is, that it's not just about shame, guilt, or condemnation. It's not just about regret, remorse, or self-abasement. Number three, it's not penance, atonement, payment, or punishment that we act out upon ourselves. The word repentance often gets confused with the Latin word penance. And that comes from a Catholic background and how they taught on this issue. And they taught that, you know, you have to do penance to prove to God that you're really serious. And then he might forgive you if you're serious enough. And so acts of penance. But here's the reality. Jesus paid it all. And if he paid it all, and if we just sang about that the Father's wrath was completely satisfied then there's no penance for us to pay. God's not looking for payment from you. He already made that payment. He already gave you that pardon. What he's looking for is in light of what he's done for you, change your mind. Change your mind about your sin. Change your mind about who God is. Change your mind about who you now are in him because of what he's done for you. And so changing our mind... So what is it not? It's not penance, atonement, payment, or punishment that we act out on ourselves. It's not regret or remorse or self-abasement. It's not guilt, shame, or condemnation. Number four, it's not asking for forgiveness over and over again. What do we mean by this? Well, it's that doctrinal word that I just told you about, propitiation. Jesus is the propitiation for our sin. This word means the full payment for our sin. So what that means is is that because God has made a full payment for our sin, this allows God to forever stand in our favor on our side with open arms of grace. It is finished. He's forgiven you. And so repentance is not you getting more forgiveness of God. It's you changing your mind and understanding He has forgiven you. He is transforming you, and you are confessing, forsaking, admitting, acknowledging to God— That you need his daily supply of grace. And then number four, it isn't reclaiming or regaining salvation. It's not regaining or reclaiming salvation. So that's quickly what repentance is not. So what is repentance? So write this down, the definition of repentance. The definition of repentance. And to get a better definition of this, I want to allude to another verse that's not our key text in Luke 15. And that's found in Revelation 3.19. Jesus says this to one of the churches... One of the churches that knows him as Savior, he says, As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Be zealous, therefore, and repent. The word zealous means this. To be moved with energetic and earnest desire. So God says, be zealous. Be moved with energetic and earnest desire and Repent. The word repent means simply this, to think differently, to change one's mind. It literally comes from two Greek words, meta noia. Meta meaning change, noia meaning mind. To change your mind. To have the spiritual light bulbs come on and say, oh, I've never seen that before. Ooh, I'm going to start walking that way. So it's a change of mind. And you can change your mind, as we'll see today, on many different things as it reveals or as it relates to truth. And so daily, we're to be doing this not only with our sin issues. And so often when people think of the word repentance, what they think of, oh, repent from sin. That's one of the needs. But it's not everything that that word encapsulates. encapsulates. Because the reality is there's so much more that we need to change our mind about. Change our mind about who God is. Change our mind about who we now are. I just heard a testimony this morning from one of our teenagers of how God has given them victory over the last several days in their life because they know who they are in Christ. You know what that is? They've been repenting daily and taking the truth of the gospel and saying, Oh, this is who I am in Christ. I'm going to start living a different way. And so changing your mind about who God is Who we are in Christ And who, what God has done for us in the gospel so, a repent, so to repent means to simply change your mind Here's a great definition from the chapter that we were studying this week Chapter 12 uh, The writer says this Repentance is a willing, personal acknowledgement of sin And a renewed yielding to Jesus for grace-driven life change Ooh, that's good that is a great definition, and I think you've got some blanks there to fill in for that definition there. Repentance is a willing, personal acknowledgement of sin and a renewed yielding to Jesus for grace-driven life change. Let's look at a few key words here because he says acknowledgement of sin. So let's look at three key words here in this definition. Number one, acknowledge. That word acknowledge means this, to agree with God that something is sinful sinful hurtful, and destructive. When we are repenting in our lives, specifically over sin issues that we face, what we are doing when we repent is, number one, we are acknowledging. We are saying, God, this sin is hurtful, destructful, sinful. It's it's going to destroy me, and it harms my relationship with you. Um... We all know that sin is hurtful, destructive. but somehow we get deceived in the moment of thinking that it's pleasurable and there's going to be no consequences and no cost. The reality is, is there's a lot of costs, as we'll see in the story of the prodigal son here in just a moment. So three words, acknowledge, agree with God that something is sinful, hurtful, and destructive. Number two, confess. This is another biblical principle tied into this word repentance. What we're doing is we're confessing. What does that mean? We're admitting it to God before God. We're admitting it before God. We're not hiding the sin. We're not rationalizing the sin away. We're not blaming others for our sin. Well, well, well God, my, my sin is justified. This is justified anger. You don't know how hard it is to get along with him. Well, you're not repenting there. Do you hear it? You're just well, well, God. I would act different if my spouse did. Adam and Eve, the woman thou gave me, God, she made me do it. Blaming, so so we hide it. We try to excuse it away. But what confession is? Is it saying, No, God, I'm not going to hide it anymore. I'm not going to rationalize it. I'm not going to blame others. I'm not going to excuse it away. I'm not going to tolerate it. I'm not going to justify myself. I'm not going to ignore it. Sometimes we think that. We just ignore it. No, no, no. Confession is when we admit it before God. We agree with God that it's hurtful, sinful, and destructive. And then finally, forsake. Forsake. What we're doing in that word, forsaking, is we're making a choice of the will. In Christ, our new will. That new will that Paul says that he wants to do right. So that new will given to us in the new nature... We're making a choice of the will to be dead to it and to serve righteousness. And so these three words, acknowledge, confess, and forsake. So this week, specifically in the area of when we are changing our mind about sin, God is calling us to, in that word repentance, acknowledge, confess, and forsake it. I would challenge you to uh, take these three words and to think that through as you think about this word repentance in your life, specifically in the area of dealing with sin and so repentance is the act then of us taking responsibility for our sin removing the games that we try to play with god and with others and it's getting real before him this is what repentance is it's a changing of our minds which leads to a change of will change of direction acknowledge confess forsake so then what is the result of repentance what happens when I allow God to daily renew my heart and mind to his truth? When I'm daily renewing my mind against sins that would destroy and hurt me, and I'm running to Christ, and I'm, and I'm, and I'm dwelling in him. What are, what's the result of that? Write down these words quickly. I don't think there's blanks there, but just write down the words growth slash change slash transformation. All those words. Growth being primary, but growth, change, transformation, spiritual growth happens as a result of repentance but here's the obstacles to our growth just like a plant has obstacles to growing in a garden so so does our spiritual lives and and satan's not going to go down without a without a fight and so the obstacles to our growth many times are pride self-justification as we just mentioned blame shifting lying rationalizing as you study the Old Testament, I love the Old Testament because the Old Testament is a picture of, of us in so many ways through the nation of Israel. And if you remember with the nation of Israel, so many times they tried to rationalize their their, their sin. They tried to blame others. They tried to uh, self-justify themselves. And the nation of Israel pers- personified all these obstacles to growth um, on many occasions when God was seeking to get their attention and draw them to himself in fact God uses a very descript phrase for the nation of Israel many of you might know it Uh, he 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 used the phrase stiff-necked to refer to the nation of Israel many times he says but they obeyed not neither inclined their ear but made their neck stiff that they might not hear nor receive instruction do you realize that uh, this actually can be very visible in people's lives too Pastor Don and I, we preach, right, Pastor Don? And it's sometimes easy to see people getting literally physically stiff-necked in the audience because you're preaching truth, and you can, all of a sudden, they tense up like, uh-oh, you know? Um, we're, and, and, and so the battles start, and you can tell they spiritual battles. We think we can hide it, but we really can't. And so God says here that the nation of Israel, they're... Their, their obstacles to their spiritual growth were pride, self, self-justification. They, they didn't want to face these issues. And so th- throughout, throughout the nation of Israel's life, God was calling on them to repent, to return. Um, uh, how many of you know that babies can be stubborn little creatures? Um, precious little babies. I'll never forget when Caitlin was about two years old and talk about an illustration of this verse, stiff-necked, um, there just came a time when Caitlin, Caitlin, out of all three of our kids and I'm talking about her extra today because she's not here, she's down at music camp so don't tell her I told this illustration uh, later, anyway, unless she asks and then I will not have you lie but anyway, um, uh, about two years old she, she just was a crier a screaming crier and Rebecca and I just finally made the decision as parents, she's going to have to cry this out we can't keep going, on, go, going into that crib and rescuing her every time. We're creating a very bad habit here. And literally, it took, what, what, Rebecca, two and a half, three hours. The girl would not stop crying. I promise you, we weren't abusing our child. But at the same time, what, did we, what were we trying to do as parents in that moment? We weren't trying to break her spirit, but we were trying to break her stubborn will. Because she had a lot of her daddy in her. And... Um, Thankfully, that occurred. But sometimes God, in his love for us, allows us to go our own way a while so that we'll see that the way that we're going is, is not, is not going to help us. It's only going to hurt us. Um, and so babies, they, they can be stubborn little creatures, but, but we as parents, we love them, and we know that growth is, is the goal for them. And, and so growth is only po- possible once we have softened our hearts And we've repented and we've changed our minds. And so repentance, I love this definition or or further expansion on this, this idea. Repentance is when the light of truth comes on in your heart. You see sin for what it is, God for who he is, grace as it truly is, and you run to Jesus acknowledging truth. Man, let that sink in. It's the light of truth coming on in your heart. And so, yes, repentance of sin, and that's where we're really dealing with today in our message. But there's other things that that, that's occurring in repentance. You truly see God for who he is. And none of us in this room see him perfectly. All of us see through a glass darkly, but then face to face. And so we're all growing in our understanding of this amazing God that we have a relationship with. And then we see his grace for what it truly is, as you're about to see in the story of the prodigal. And then you run to Jesus acknowledging truth. And so, that's what repentance is. This is what repentance is about. Now, number two, let's look at what leads to repentance then. What is it that leads to repentance? Look at Luke 15, verses 11 through 24. The Bible says this, And he said, A certain man had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the portion of goods that fall to me. And he divided unto them his living. And not many days after, the younger son gathered all together and took his journey into a far country, And there wasted his substance with riotous living. And when he had spent all, there arose a mighty famine in that land, and he began to be in want. And he went and joined himself to a citizen of that country, and he sent him into his fields to feed pigs, swine. And he would have fain have filled his belly with the husk that the swine did eat, and no man gave to him. And when he came to himself, he said... How many hired servants or slaves of my father's have bread enough and to spare, and I perish with hunger? I will arise and go to my father and will say unto him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before thee, and am now no more worthy to be called thy son. Make me as one of thy slaves or hired servants. And he arose and came to his father, but when he was yet a great way off, his father saw him and had compassion and ran and fell on his neck and kissed him. Notice that all of those actions from the father happened before the son even started his speech that he had rehearsed. And so then the son starts in on his speech. Verse 21. And the son said unto him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and, against, and, and, and in thy sight, and am no more worthy to be called thy son. But the father said to his servant, So the father stopped his son's speech halfway through. And the father said to his servants, "Bring forth the best robe and put it on him, and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet, and bring hither the fatted calf and kill it, and let us eat and be merry. for this, my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found, and they began to be merry." As you read that passage, let me ask you the question: What was it that led to the prodigal sons? True repentance. I don't think any of us would doubt that the prodigal son had true repentance. It wasn't just surface, oh, I'm sorry. No, it was deep, it was real. What was it that led? Well, let me ask you first was it fear that led to the prodigal son's repentance? Meaning, man, I better get back home because dad's going to beat me when he finds out how low I've fallen. Was that what caused the prodigal son to turn? Fear. Fear of punishment, fear of wrath. Um, the threat of punishment may lead to a surface repentance. Many, many times people are sorry because they got caught. Or they're sorry because they're afraid of the hammer falling. And so a lot of times we change our mind about the speed limit because we don't want to pay the fine, right? And so, and so there's this threat of punishment, fear, consequence. But that leads to a surface repentance, but it is not heart-changing repentance that God desires for his children. As children of God, the punishment concept, I believe, is a distorted view of God, which does not paint a full portrait of who God is. Because if God were this way, it would only mean that Jesus wasn't indeed the perpetuation for us. You see, propitiation means the full satisfaction of God's wrath and his righteous demands. Jesus took all of our punishment upon the cross, 1 John 2, verse 2, and he is the propitiation for our sins, and not for our sins only, but also for the sins of the whole world. This is why we know we can have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. Herein is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. You see, the love of God is manifested in the full satisfaction of God's judgment and wrath upon Jesus for our sin. And so, yes, sin's still going to carry a whole lot of consequences. It's still going to bring pain. We're going to perhaps endure chastening, uh, certainly, as we, as we sin as God's children. But these things are never punitive, meaning God's not allowing these consequences of sin in our life to beat us up, but actually to bring us up. To raise us in the nurture and admonition of him. They are meant as corrective and restorative measures, not punitive. And that is so important to understand as God's children. Because if we think that that's God's main relationship and the way he relates to us, and ooh, I better change, because if not, God's going to drop the hammer. Well, sin alone drops the hammer. Listen, if you go out and you do things that are sinful, sin, uh, the, the law of sowing and reaping still happens in the world. But God in his love is going to draw you to himself, and he's going to chasten you, as as he says there in Revelation 3. And these things are meant for corrective measures and restorative measures. They're not punitive. And so one motivation is fear. I don't believe that's the motivation for the prodigal son here, to repent. Number two, was the motivation to repent reward? Did the prodigal son think that in his going home, he was going to be rewarded for his repentance? No, he he wasn't expecting much. He was just expecting to be one of the slaves. So reward wasn't a motivation for his repentance. Number three was duty. Was duty a, a motivation? You know, I'm my father's son, so I should do it. Was duty a motivation? That wasn't the primary motivation either. What was the primary motivation? Look with me at verse 17 and he came to and when he came to himself i love that it's like all of a sudden he he wakes up in his slumber in his stupor and he says this is not wise this is not going to live, lead to long life for me he said how many slaves of my fathers have bread enough and to spare and i perish with hunger do you know what led To the prodigal son's repentance was believing that his father was a good master. What the prodigal son didn't understand is that his father was also a really, 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 really good father as well. But you see that it was the concept of goodness. It was the concept of the father's goodness that said, okay, I'm at the bottom here. There's really nowhere I can go from here. And maybe I can go back to my father's house because I know he's good to our slaves. I know he's good to our servants. And I'll and I'll rehearse this speech and I'll just vie to be one in the slave house. So he believed in his father's goodness for his slaves. What the prodigal son was about to be absolutely struck by, awestruck by, was that this man was a good father as well. So what is the motivation for this man's repentance? It was goodness, and by parallel and illustration, it's the goodness of God, as the Bible says here, that leads us to repentance. That's the major motivating force for transformation in our life, for changing our mind. Oh yeah, fear might motivate us to change for a while. Reward, duty, but it is the goodness of God that leads us to repentance. I love this quote. God doesn't desire forced repentance. He desires your willful return and receptivity. He desires for you to see him as better than your sin. This son, for some reason, saw the pig slop as as being pretty good for a while until he understood that his father was better. And so notice that that as this this son comes home, as he returns, basically his speech is, Make me a slave. He was never expecting to be made a son again. So imagine this this, this son's amazement and surprise when his father would not even give him a chance to do penance, not even give him a chance to rehearse his speech of promises of how he was going to do better and try harder. What he expected was nothing like what he experienced from his father. He had no clue. The prodigal, when he was in the pig pen, he had no clue that his father was waiting with eager and open arms. He had no idea that he simply needed to change his mind and return to open arms. Isn't that amazing? How much sooner do you think that the prodigal son would return to his father if he had known his father's true heart? One thing is for sure. (laughs) I think he probably would have eaten fewer corn husk in that pig pen. Don't you think? If he had really known that his father was that good. He knew his father was a good master, but he had no idea that his father was a good father. This is what leads to true and lasting repentance. It's the goodness of God. So that's why we major on it here. Because, yeah, I can get up here and say, if you don't repent, you might get killed in a car wreck. And that could be, I mean, sometimes if you, you know, one sin would be drunk driving. If you sin and get drunk and you're driving behind the wheel, you might die. There's a lot of things that happen just because of the course of this broken and fallen universe. But the greatest motivating force that I've ever seen is what we see here in this story That this young man repented, truly repented, because he understood, at least on some level, the concept of the goodness of his father. What a truth. This is what leads to repentance. And so perhaps the greatest thing we need to repent of this morning is to change our mind about what it is that motivates true repentance. For some, we think, ah, yeah. You have to give them the hammer because that's the only way people will change. Well, sometimes, yes, others say with fear, pulling them out of the fire, and some with compassion, making a difference. So, yes, I get that there is some of that there, but it's not the key motivating force the Scriptures tell us. It's the goodness of God. And so then we see what leads to repentance. We see what repentance is here in this story. And then finally, we will cover just briefly what hinders repentance in our life. What are some things that hinder repentance? Number one, a love for sin hinders repentance. For a while, and we don't know how long this son was away from his father's house. We don't know how long this journey was. We we don't know how much time it was. But what we do know is, is that as long as this son loved his sin more than being in the presence of his father, and as long as this sin still offered him any hope of pleasure and satisfaction, he was going to keep on loving his sin. So what hinders repentance in our lives? Number one, a love for sin. When we love sin more than we love Jesus and we refuse to repent. As we've mentioned, there's only two core motivations for repentance and obedience to God, either love or law. Love says, I want to obey God. Law says, you got to obey God. Which one do you think is going to really motivate you? Love. Love takes you beyond the law, which is awesome. Study the story of Zacchaeus, and you'll see he went further than what the law required for stealing. The law required twofold. He said, Master, I want to restore fourfold. Why? Because the love of Jesus had gotten the hold of his heart. Law always leads me to more failure and discouragement. Law only breaks down. The only sustainable motivation for repentance and obedience to God is love, believing in his goodness, allowing his love, mercy, truth, and grace To draw you. So so what hinders repentance? Number one, a love for sin. Number two, pride and self-will. Pride and self-will. We've already covered this, so we won't park here long. But the nation of Israel, they were stiff-necked. They were prideful. They were self-willed. A proud and stubborn heart remains trapped in their idolatry, and God persistently chastens us to deliver us from this self-destructive posture. I can't think of, uh, I can't help but think of the story of Jonah, and and it's covered here in this, this chapter. Jonah. You remember Jonah. Jonah was somewhat stiff necked. He was somewhat full of pride and self will. And he thought it was justified. If you you study the story, he was justifying his hatred for the Ninevites because the Ninevites were nasty people, those nasty Ninevites. And so he thought that his hatred for the Ninevites was justified. So you see the self justification there. But Jonah, his pride and self will kept him from repenting for a while. But I want to point out something that was a great reminder to me this week, and that is this. Many times the story of Jonah is read wrong. What do I mean by that? Catch this. This is a great truth. What I mean by this is sometimes we read the story of Jonah wrong. We think that the great fish was sent by God to punish Jonah. Now, come on, be honest. How many of us, because I know I did, and it wasn't until this week I'm like, oh, duh, that makes so much sense. For my entire life growing up, I thought that the fish was sent by God to punish Jonah. Raise your hand if you were like me and you thought that that was the main reason God sent the fish. I thought so. It's, it's kind of, again, one of those spiritual lights comes on. And, and at that moment, we have a cho- choice to say, oh, wow, that is true. Or to say, no, 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 that must be someone else's interpretation. But listen, the fish that swallowed Jonah was actually the grace of God. What was Jonah trying to do when he was thrown overboard? He was trying to commit suicide. Now listen up, every one of you, because this is rampant in our our culture today. Suicide. Jonah, in his pride and self-will, was so stubborn in his sin. Now I'm not saying that all suicide is this, but certainly in Jonah's case... He was so prideful and self-willed, he did not want to repent that he was ready to take his life. And that's fully what I believe he expected would happen when the sailors threw him overboard. And the grace of God swallowed Jonah whole to rescue him. Jonah, don't be so foolish to take your own life when through you we're going to see one of the greatest revivals in human history happen. It would be like God calling you to go to the Middle East, to the center of Islamic fundamentalism today and share the gospel. And so this was the grace of God in Jonah's life. And so God, in his limitless grace and overwhelming goodness, sent a great fish to save Jonah from himself and to lead Jonah to true repentance. Look at this verse. He says, When my soul fainted within me, I remembered the Lord. And my prayer came unto thee, unto thine holy temple. Jonah repented, at least on some level. We know he he tried to take that that, that hatred back on later when he was sitting outside the city, watching for him to be destroyed. But in this moment, Jonah repented, and God delivered him. So what hinders repentance? Love for sin, pride, and self-will. Number three, ignorance of God's goodness. We've talked about that. Sin is always hurtful, but God's commands are always helpful. God is a good father, and he always has our best interests at heart. I'm sure that prodigal son thought that in his leaving his father's house, he was going to get away from his father's rules. He was going to, uh, he, he was, he was going to get away from all of his father's uh, uh, things that, that, that he saw as being oppressive and cramping his freedom. But I'm sure when that prodigal returned home, he saw that those rules were actually a great picture of the father's love for him repentance is believing and running to the father so ignorance of god's goodness we've we've talked about that at at length these are things that hinder repentance a love for sin pride and self-will ignorance of god's goodness and finally sin's pleasure sin's pleasure the reality is for many let's be honest sin hasn't cost enough and it hasn't hurt us enough for us to come to our spiritual senses but look at the story of the prodigal In verse 17, it says, When he came to himself. Finally, sin had run its course. It had taken everything from him. He was truly at the bottom. And sin's pleasure no longer held a candle to being in the Father's presence. Even if it was just, again, in his flawed understanding at this point, even if it was just as a slave. The prodigal son finally got to the point where he had had enough and he came to himself. He came to himself. And so there's two times when we truly repent. Number one, when we love Jesus enough. Or number two, when sin becomes painful enough. And really it's a combination of both of those. When we see our sin for the pain and the death that it really is, And we see God in his love trying to draw us. Those two things motivate lasting repentance. Repentance, it's to be the norm of the heart of a believer, of one whose heart has been awakened and transformed by Jesus. Repentance is to be the daily reality, the norm. Um, Repentance is something that we will do daily the rest of our lives as we continue to grow in grace and reliance upon God's spirit at work in us. And so what does God want us to change our mind? What does he want us to repent of today? Well, perhaps today God's call to you is to change your mind about who he truly is and how he truly desires to motivate lasting life transformation in your life, grace-driven life change. For some, we still don't believe that it's grace that drives a life change. And so, like the elder brother, we don't understand that it's the love of the father for both of them. And that's what I love about this story, is that later on, the father goes out to the elder brother, and he says, son, everything I have is yours. Come on into the party. Come on into the celebration. And so, maybe it's today to change your mind about who you think God is and to grow. Because, see, when we repent, we grow. We change. We're transformed. And we learn how to live in the spirit and live with others better. And so maybe it's a change of mind about who God is. Perhaps it's a change of mind about your sin. Like this prodigal son, the sin that you're involved in is only going to lead you further into the pig pigsty. It's going to only lead you trying to eat junk food spiritually that's even, that leaves you emptier than when you started. And what you need to know is, is that God's not just a good A good God for slaves, because really God doesn't have slaves. He has sons who serve him in the family business. And so God's a good, good father. And so change your mind about who God is. Change your mind about your sin. Change your mind about who you now are in Christ. And change your mind about the sufficiency of the gospel and its daily need in your life. Here at the end of our service today, we are in a very real way practicing this reality of metanoia, of biblical repentance, through an observance of the Lord's Supper. What we do in the Lord's Supper is we remember and reflect on the great sacrifice, the love of the Father for us in sending Jesus Christ to be our Savior. I'm going to go ahead and ask our deacons to be dismissed at this time to the back and get ready for this. And through that remembrance, through that remembrance, Um, Just like Jonah remembered. Just like the prodigal son remembered. uh, Just like God was calling on the nation of Israel to remember. Through this observance of the Lord's Supper, we are to say, Okay, God, I see what you did for me. I remember this. Therefore, I repent. I change my mind about my sin. I change my mind about what I think I know you to be. And Father, help me to ever continue to grow my understanding of that as I read your word. And so it's through a time like this that a very real symbol of repentance occurs where we say, okay, in light of all you've done for me, Jesus, I let go of this and I cling to you. You are my hope. You are my source of life. I mean, we're eating food. We're eating crackers and drinking grape juice today, which are symbols of the body and blood of Jesus. And what we're saying through taking these foods, as we're saying, he is the source of our spiritual, not only our survival, but our thriving. He is the bread of life. He is the water of life. Through him we'll never hunger again. Through him we'll never thirst again. And notice what the prodigal said. He said, the slaves have enough food and enough to spare. How much more food and satisfaction do you think sons received? Yeah. You see, Our Father, our God, is much better, much better than we can ever imagine.